Hello and welcome to Podcasting's Praxis. I am David and I am here today with Rob. Hi. James. Hello. Seb. Hi. I sort of forgot I was doing this, so I've had some drinks. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> Note that he waited until after we started recording to tell us this. <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. Oh. And for the first time, we have Ben. G'day. And don't worry, I'm on my third beer as we speak, so... Uh, Yay! This is the effect Drinking that pounds. watching a Boris Johnson press conference has on me. I'm, I'm, I've been drinking bleach solutions because that's going to cure what ails me. <laughs> ammonium. Oh. No, not ammonium. Um, colloidal bleach. That's the cure. Co- colloidal silver, that's what you want. No, gentlemen, bleach. Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. To help set the tone, as we're gathered here together in our toilet paper bunker, I would just like to say it has been an absolute honour posting with you all, and I'm sure we'll meet again someday. In oh, another yeah. forum. So, if, 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 I could still, <laughs> if I could still touch my face, I'd blink away my tears. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Right, so today we're talking about coronavirus we haven't done anything on coronavirus yet and it's probably about time to because there's enough of us left alive to do so um <laughs> so uh we've got ben on tonight or today i should say um we've got ben on today to talk us through some of the some of the general characteristics and some of the responses do you want to tell us a bit about your background ben um, well, essentially, my academic background is public health and microbiology, but uh, some years ago, I sold out to Big Pharma and kind of wandered off to do to do evil and uh, just generally, you know, become the living embodiment of the no ethical consumption under capitalism. <laughs> so this is, is this your uh, first stage of your repentance? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Think of tonight as your first struggle session and it'll all be fine. <laughs> Everyone loves a good redemption arc, so that's fine. Yeah, I mean, we can't be in the same room because otherwise we'd like, you know, write your sins on paper and then hit you with shoes. We we literally <laughs> can't be in the same room right now because of the fucking coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. You definitely can, so long as it's in this fucking normal country. I suppose we could anyway. hold we could hold the meeting at Disney World. <laughs> yeah, they'll never close that. <laughs> Oh fuck! Oh. It's like Zombieland, so, but um, Disney World and but, coronavirus <laughs> instead. Yeah, but knowing the UK, it's going to be a Zombieland, but like set in a Butlins. <laughs> oh god! Yeah, oh, that is that is the bleakest fucking scenario <laughs> I've ever held. I would watch that movie. That would be either harrowing or a brilliant comedy, and no middle ground. <laughs> fuck! Um, yeah, Zombieland Butlins, directed by David Lynch. <laughs> Ian Uchi with a co-writing credit. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So, Ben, do you want to talk us through what, what this virus is? What, what, what is it? I, I don't what, what the fuck is a virus. We all know what a virus is. But, like, what, what is this virus? Well, I mean, the very basic level of virus is just a really horrible piece of molecular machinery that goes around and fucks up actual living cells. Now, there is a debate about whether viruses are alive or not, but I really don't want to get into that tonight. And uh, we're not the people for that discussion. Eh? <laughs> no, it's is, is, is that so we can prevent virus abortions? 
Well, that escalated <laughs> quickly. Um, yeah, essentially, uh, coronavirus or COVID nineteen, as the proper name is, is uh, what's called a RNA virus, which is a ribonucleic acid, and it's a single strand one of those. So it's essentially you ignore all the sort of structure, which is the lipids and the capsid, pro- like the, which is what you see when you see a picture of the virus, that big sphere with spiky bits there on the outside. It's just a bunch of strands of, of RNA that exist to make life just that little bit more miserable. So it's like a revel then? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> yeah. Start coughing, never know which one you're going to get. Yeah. Um, the, but yeah, this is, this is one of, uh, okay, six, I think it's six. I, I, I'm doing that off the top of my head. Different coronaviruses are known to infect humans. The There are... MERS and SARS, which you may have heard of, which are very, very similar to this new coronavirus. Uh, oh, yeah, they were sort of the last two sort of yeah. strains, panics, SARS eruptions, was whatever you want to call it. 2003, them. and that didn't really take off in a big way, which was good because it had something like a 9% fatality rate and is just a really horrible thing to catch. And then was that the bird flu one or no no that's 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 uh, the bird flu is a is a different one that's an actual influenza virus so as you can see okay. we have these we have these sort of pandemic scares on a relative regular basis so it's not <laughs> usually they're contained but in this case uh, some of the characteristics of the virus and the way it sort of interacts with people have meant that it's a quite a difficult job um, yeah MERS is the real horrible one and MERS ironically stands for Middle East respiratory virus, uh, and it's really bad. A third of the people who get it die. Another third have severe, long-lasting, debilitating conditions from it, and another third sort of only nearly die. So it is the bad one. But again, it's it's bad enough that it doesn't spread as effectively because just again, it's a, in a similar to Ebola, it just kills everybody. Um, specifically, the respiratory virus is a it attacks what's called your epithelial cells, and these are basically structural cells that line your blood vessels, your organs, so your your throat, anything sort of a mucous membrane they're called, your lungs, uh, around the outside of your blood vessels, and particularly it goes to the lungs because that's where it finds its best home. It essentially gets you by getting in there, killing everything, the dead cells slough off, and then your lungs start to fill up. And at that point, you can you can feel a bit ill, you feel a bit coffee, and then your immune system goes absolutely mental because it knows this is a this is bad news, and floods your floods your lungs with immune cells to try and sort of clear out the infection. But that can often just make it worse. In the end, how does that make it worse? Well, essentially, it's trying to kill it, but it's also killing one. It's also killing a bunch of stuff, and you still you get more sort of debris falling into these uh, little tiny alveoli. In your, which are the actual thing that does the respiration inside your lungs. And so essentially they fill up with gunk and then uh, if it's infected, fluid starts leaking through them and it's all, it's all quite nasty. And then you end up with pneumonia, which is essentially you're, you're drowning on land. This is why the number of like uh, ICU beds and things become really important because when it gets that bad, you've got to really try and you know keep the person alive. Yeah, if someone, if someone has pneumonia and is that ill, then it's a lot of effort to, to keep them alive. You have to often give them supplemental oxygen. You often have to intubate them. And it's just, it's all things that are, require specialized equipment and a lot of uh, like health practitioner time and care. 
which obviously is quite difficult to do if you're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, yeah, I imagine that there's a certain limited amount of hospital beds and people being able to take care of it and also non-sick doctors to take care of you. Yeah, um, I don't know off the top of my head the statistics for hospital beds and intensive care beds in the UK, but it's going to be in the, in the tens of thousands at best. So you see very quickly if this virus, and some, some estimations are 12 15% of the people who get it end out with serious disease and and hospitalized if you have even a million people with it 12% of that is is 120,000 people which is going to very quickly and see exceed the amount of beds and yeah you have yeah. in the UK there's been well a little uh, graph floating around that said i think we had 6.6 .6 per 100,000 people in the country so that sounds about like a normal a normal level yeah but obviously they're mostly in use most of the time due to rather, you know, intensive care needs. Yeah, a normal accepted practice is about, as ICU usage is about 80-85%. So of that 12,000 is maybe 2,000 free. Yeah. So either way, yeah, it's bad when lots of people desperately need this because there just simply isn't, you know, the normal capacity. It's not even necessarily just kicking other people out of... Uh, other regular beds they need quite a lot more attention to it is that right yeah that's that's pretty much it so the reason that it's likely to get that bad like you said this one's a bit of a fucker for the way that it trans its transmission works like how how does how is that different from the other like sars and males why is this one seemingly more transmissible than them to be honest with you we don't really know that yet uh it's it's in all likelihood almost purely fomites and fluids, which is essentially coughs, little micro droplets that you create when you cough or sneeze, which then go on to infect other people through vulnerable parts of the body, like the eyes, through the mouth, through breathing them in. Um, there are some absolutely terrifying case studies from China, which have things like someone infecting someone half an hour after they got off the bus, same bus and not having touched the same parts of the bus which I'm not entirely, I mean, if that, if that stuff is true and uh, that one I've, I've only got from, uh, it's the, that lovely English doctor man who does the videos and I've, I've blanked on his name, unfortunately, but he's been posting. Oh, yeah. Times he in does the do great updates, doesn't he? Um, yeah. I, I saw that case study and I, I, let's just say it was a good thing. I was wearing my brown pants that day. Because <laughs> Dr. John Campbell. There yes, we go. that's the one. We'll drop a link to his channel in the in the description because there is some good shit there. In in general, so like it doesn't spread by people who have it just breathing. Like they do actually need to sneeze or cough or like explode droplets essentially. Yeah, but the other thing is you touch your face all the time. That's the real problem. So you're touching your face, you're getting stuff from your nose, you're coughing into your hands, and it looks like the reason this one is so much more infectious than both SARS and MERS is that it's much hardier. And so it can survive on surfaces for extended amounts of time. There's a lot, there's still not a lot of hard data on exactly much, but is in hours at the very minimum. So it's not like... Uh, okay, so hence, hence the advice to keep washing always, your hands. Always wash your hands, which is, yeah, essentially the only thing you can, you can do. Uh, do. For masks, there's a, not a lot of proof that they are effective. If you're exposed, they're not. Yeah, gonna... I really wanted to ask about the mask thing because I've heard it both ways around that like 
you should wear the mask as a preventative or you should wear the mask when you have it to stop the you know the sneezes from exploding into people's faces yeah i mean theoretically if your mask is properly fitted and you're washing your hands all the time and not touching your face uh, you will really struggle to catch it but nobody is using their mask correctly no one really does and if people go out rush out and they panic by them they don't fit them properly and then what happens is we end up with a massive shortage we can't we can't equip healthcare practitioners which is people who are the on the front lines who really really need these masks and are getting trained in how to use them correctly i'd rather die than shave my beard and it may come to that yeah that was another question is (laughs) because this is what i heard as well somewhere is that you're better off not having a beard or having a beard with a beard compromises the efficacy of a mask basically Okay, but let's presuppose I don't have a mask. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, if you don't have a mask, a beard could theoretically have a small shielding effect, but I would not expect it to be significant at all. Well, so I should get a moustache that just literally covers my mouth and use that <laughs> if I can't get a real mask. <laughs> I mean, you're just welcome to Just get like try. a shower curtain fitted over your face. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if, if you're using a, what's an N95 or if... FLD level two on the European standard, which is the European standard for that mask. It should be securely fitted enough that if you farted really badly, you wouldn't smell it, essentially. And that's not. Oh, there's a challenge to put to the test. (laughs) That's essentially extremely hard to like maintain in a non-medical setting. But if you if you do have the virus and for some reason you just really really want to go out and about. Instead of sort of coughing up, coughing up bits of lung and feeling miserable, wearing a mask will help prevent you spreading it to other people. But again, still everything you're touching, because you're still likely to have touched your face and got and got fomites, which is the little the little droplet particles which which contain the virus. Yeah, the little spready bits. Yeah, um, you've still likely got them on your hands. You're still likely to spread them to everything you touch. Okay, and like you were earlier, you were referencing that um, I think it was in pre chat that Iran is kind of in a big sort of uh, terrifying problem. But I wanted to ask about uh, China first because there's a lot of people saying now, okay, sort of that like if you look at some of the graphs, it looks like they're the amount of new cases they're getting seems to be slowing down, and that is supposed to be a good thing. But then like other countries are exploding at the moment. So can you sort of talk a little bit about? how this is is spreading and whether or not what the Chinese have done was good or whether or not it's too soon to tell? What the Chinese have done is legitimately quite impressive. They've essentially shut down every non-essential point of contact, which has obviously done wonders to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, The sustainability of it is always in question. And I have pretty serious doubts whether the level of shutdown that China has achieved would be very very achievable in much of the world. But um, yeah, they've, they've put some pretty serious quarantine and infection control measures into place and they do seem to be working. Uh, initially, initially, a lot of thought was given to the sort of, sorry, what's a, the word has escaped my mind, the, um, so the, the, what's called the case fatality rate. And it was looking, yeah, it was looking at about two to 3% in the initial Chinese outbreak. And everyone kind of waved their hands and hummed and hard that, oh, there's a, there's a vast amount of undetected uh, cases out there. People, and there was the expectation that that rate would go down massively as more cases were tested and as more uh, people with 
people with very mild symptoms were accounted for. The thing is, it hasn't. That And that is one of the truly worrying things about this outbreak, is that everyone right up to the WHO kind of assumed that Chinese numbers were just complete bullshit and were giving estimates anywhere 10 to 50 times as many actually infected. And I was guilty of the same thing. I looked at them and I was like, I just didn't trust those numbers at all because they didn't seem realistic. But as it's sort of maintained and the Chinese seem to have sort of acquired more credibility in a way, it does seem that the this is good because they've obviously contained the spread with through some incredibly drastic measures. But uh, at the same time, it does mean that there isn't this massive reservoir of, of unaccounted for cases. So the, the fatality rate in everyone's estimates kind of ticks back up. Okay. So, and, and you, were, you were saying that like the, um, that a lot of countries can't do what the Chinese have done. Is that essentially because they are a one party state and they've just like cleared the streets of Wuhan province and that stuff doesn't really fly in the West? I mean, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on China or anything like, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty leery about passing comment for that. No, um, no, no. But I mean, it's more like the general question is like, if you had, you know, military rule in the streets and you just said, you would just say to, I don't know, Milan and Rome and a bunch of other cities, you know, no, you're not literally not allowed on the street anymore. I mean, that's a lot of that is what they're doing to, or they're going to attempt to do in Italy. I just have doubts about whether it's effective. Yeah, surely it's much more a question of like organizational as in state structure and um, power rather than uh, a question of pure ideology. Like, for instance, many places will refuse to even try, <clears throat> not naming any names, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it is simply a case of having essentially people in uniform with, um, you know, the state monopoly of force behind them setting the rules and then being capable of enforcing that. I think it's, yeah, it's not, it's not as if anything completely impossible given the right context. It's only actual ability to enforce it. The other thing that China did, which is, is quite important if you're going to go for that sort of extreme quarantine, is they basically said to everyone, this is a crisis, the government is here to deal with the crisis. And uh, after, afterwards, we're all going to make things go back to normal. It means you can get your jobs back. It means during the crisis, we will deliver you food and make sure that you are delivered medicine. And the people essentially trusted them to do that. And by and large, it does seem like they've done quite a good job of that. Yeah, what I was about to say is it also depends on logistical capacity and how much of your economy is kind of de facto under the, the influence of a state-controlled command. Um, so, you know, it's a whole command economy versus laissez-faire. And uh, your capacity to like rapidly convert things into command economy in crisis situations, and China has that. Vietnam has it incredibly well, um, but you know, America, Britain, we don't, and I don't think Italy does either. There's just not the institutional capacity and the logistical organisation to facilitate it. So, well, I mean, we sort of purposefully destroyed all that because we were supposed to be in free economy, right? Because we were all supposed to, the market knew best. Yeah, just in time has changed into not at all. <laughs> well, that that's the thing, isn't it? It's if you have a if you have something approximating a planned economy, no matter how it's delivered, no matter the political kind of structures around it, if you have like the bare bedrock of that, then you can build on it in times of crisis. Whereas if you don't have that, if you adopt just in time, where it's all constantly in flux, it can all be like shifted entirely based on market fluctuations. It exists purely to service the market. 
And then you enter a scenario where the market collapses at the same time as you suddenly need to rely upon it. Um, yeah, no, it gets quite scary quite quickly, doesn't it? The other thing that's interesting is that people have seemed to have rediscovered that, in fact, just-in-time and delivery sort of me- mechanisms are an incredibly bad idea for pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Right now, like yeah. something like eighty percent of the world's sort of raw pharmaceutical ingredients are produced in China before being sent elsewhere for manufacturing into whatever it is that you want it to be. And again, something like more over two thirds of the world's generics come from India, and they again completely rely on China. So right now, I think you might have seen it maybe two weeks ago now when India announced that they were stopping the export of a lot of medicines. That basically triggered sheer blind panic in a, a lot of the, uh, I'll kind of call them the pharmaceutical commun- community, <laughs> because suddenly there, there was nobody supplied the medicine and there's no real scale of uh, production in, in the West, for, especially for like sort of less expensive generics. I don't think we're even quite at the point yet where like the Chinese ships have stopped coming in. That's the other thing. There's a lot of lag because of how long it takes to ship a container from one side of the world to the other. Yeah, it was about three weeks to certain American ports and it was six weeks to a lot of places in Europe. So I think we're only just about to see the start of many of the actual kind of shortages. So the sort of panic buying uh, activities that certain people have been doing so far, that's like genuine, just weird over-purchasing. It's not even an actual shortage just yet because then, you know, they do the warehouse shuffle and stuff comes in again and potentially for other, you know, sort of coral uh, manufacturing stuff or just whatever is in the containers might actually start feeling a bit of a pinch very soon. I think the biggest victim here really is anyone that wants to buy something from (laughs) wish.com. Well, I mean, if you want to be really terrifying about it and, you know, depends on how it sets in, but just the supply chain for food, like the average uh, urban area and especially the big metropolis, like the average food stock is about six to seven days due to just-in-time supply lines, and then the supermarkets really are empty, and then it becomes really good fun. Can I just say how irritated I am that I was living out in a rural community for several years, thinking increasingly doomed, paranoid thoughts about the state of the country, and then I thought, well, (laughs) at least if I move to an urban area, then I'll be safe. And then a sodding pandemic when you want to be as far away from people as possible happens. And it's like, God damn it. Yeah, I have to say, I can't, I can't see this getting to the societal collapse. Everyone runs out of food. No, 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 so no, just, not at all. I, no. I don't want anyone listening to hear that and panic. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's uh, keep our heads. It was a cheap joke, everyone. Calm down. <laughs> no, huddle indoors and listen to our podcast on repeat forever. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have heard that another prime vector for coronavirus is in fact podcasts so you're gonna to have to be very careful there <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> man you joke right so the reason i've been a little bit quiet this episode so far a little bit is because as this episode has been going on i have received word about something so let me give you a little bit of background about a week or so ago i was at the glasgow film festival which is an international film festival And a friend of mine, without going into detail, sent me a message about some private stuff relating to projections on coronavirus. And I looked at that and I went, "Mm, well, I have a respiratory health condition. It's fairly fairly minor, but we don't actually know how it would interact. So I think I'm just going to get the rest of my tickets refunded and go home, which I did. 
The people I was at that festival with, I've just received word that it looks like they've got coronavirus. Um, they've started coming down with it. And so either in the next couple of days, I'm going to come down with coronavirus, or I fucking timed that by the skin of my teeth, seat of my pants, and I've dodged it. So uh, if, if coronavirus ends up transmitting around the pod, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm really so sorry. It's all right. We'll just, we'll make sure to live stream your downfall. No, we'll edit that bit out and it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, geez, that's, and I mean, like that exact story is happening, what, maybe tens of times, maybe hundreds every weekend, just lots and lots of near misses, lots and lots of stuff like that. And, you know, that's why the whole social distancing kind of stuff is really quite essential. I wanted to talk about the numbers a little bit, so... Now, hang on, hang on. Wait, wait a sec, David. When you say the numbers, do you mean no, the, the, the number? numbers? The numbers, not no, the not, number. Not the not, number. Not capital not number. T, capital N, the number. We'll okay. go on to the number. I just just before <laughs> so, that, I would, I would like to go over one thing that I know people it, it makes people freak out a lot, and that's the, the possibility of the virus mutating. Mm. I haven't been freaking out about that, but now I am. Well, now you are. <laughs> In... In this case, there's if there was a scale of how fast these things mutate, RNA viruses live up the sort of top end that is the top of Everest compared to everyone else down at sea level. They are really, 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 really capable of mutations, largely because they don't have any sort of error correction mechanism in their replication. So if shit gets in there, it just kind of tumbles about and often it'll make them non-viable but they exist in such vast numbers it gets it gets through yeah, the, the good there is the through. one in a billion one that yeah mutates the and right that's how and that's how this virus started off at the moment it, it's something like a pangolin met a bat and this virus that only affected them randomly mutated so it could affect humans but um yeah just a quick while we're on bats because there was that whole story but i just assumed that was a giant pile of um you know anti-asian racism that it was coming from people eating bat soup i don't think it came from people eating bat soup what does seem likely is it came from a wet market in wuhan where dozens of very strange animals have been kept in close quarters with people and there's a lot of fluids going around so that is basically the absolutely most perfect place in the world to to breed a disease that would jump from animals to humans. So I don't think so this is like the midnight fetish yet. market. Yeah, there's no certainty yet what it came from, as far as I know, but it will have. That is does seem to be the origin. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so in terms of viruses, the most dangerous place on the planet is a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a zoo, the animals are largely contained from each other, so not ah, yes, true. No, I think I think speaking now, um, what we've seen on the news of the last couple of days, the most dangerous place uh, to be is on a cruise liner full of old people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jesus. But uh, quickly, quickly. I don't know. I've held it's the front bench. I really this. hope this kills the cruise line industry. No, oh, they're all so do I. Oh, that would be nice. Uh, just quickly going back so to the ways. topic of mutations. Coronavirus. Yeah, sorry. However, are a slow mutator because they are big humongous bastards they're very they're very like large in the three-dimensional sense and this this puts constraints on their their ability to to sort of randomize their own rna so this is literally a big wet virus yeah <laughs> so when you see and the other thing is when you see when you see reports of strains variants etc on the news 
people think of a, a strain of a virus as being something completely different and generally more dangerous when often that's not the case. And the other thing is you'll see, especially what, what's called genetic tracing, where they, they, they sequence the virus in different places and then you can build a map over time of how it's spread by sort of accumulations of changes in its genetic code. And those are functionally nothing. They don't, they don't have any real effect. Um, there's been a lot of sort of disquiet about most of the Italian cases come from one which has a has a mutation on the protein spike, which is the sort of spiky bit you can see sticking out the exterior of the virus, and that which it uses to attach to cells and infiltrate them. This is this is in all the graphics you see. This is the little red point on top yeah. of the spiky ball, which okay. uh, interestingly is is why coronaviruses are called coronaviruses. It's because those bits look like little tiny crowns. So you, I guess the thing you can take away from that is that the monarchy is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so what's the etymology behind, oh, like Corona literally is crown? Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Also, this has got me thinking, could we then theoretically develop some kind of, I don't know, really tiny guillotine? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, just, you just laugh, think, but that's yeah, it's called CRISPR. Some... Just goes in there and no, 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 no. That's what some antiviral drugs try and do: is they try and get in there and chop that or uh, gum up the works of that protein spike, so it makes it unable to infect cells. Yeah, but... Biointeria. <laughs> yeah, you need you need some kind of delivery mechanism. You need you need some kind of I don't know some kind of tide of like, I don't know, proletariat, prionetariat, like, you know, I'm thinking we need to start manufacturing tiny red flags is what I'm thinking. <laughs> but yeah. Well, so, there was that, was there was that old series in the, uh, that uh, cartoon series in the late eighties, early nineties um, with like a doctor and some people who shrunk themselves down and then drove a little spaceship through your vessels and stuff and fought diseases. Or am I an episode of Archer? This. Is that the magic school bus? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. The, no, no, no. It's not the magic school bus. It's distinctly different from it. Or maybe I've just been having fever dreams for a good while now. I've got like a vague recollection of something similar. So, yes. yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll semi back you up on this. Like, I think, I think that's a real thing. It's, it's okay. I can give no details. So basically, we need to this do is- that again, but replace the the spaceship with a T forty five. <laughs> uh. Right. So if we can if we can go into numbers briefly, so there's been daily releases of the amount of infected people that or at least the amount of positive cases and the amount of people who've died from it and we've been getting updates as they come from uh Public Health England. So is that the real figure? If if five hundred and sixty odd people as of now have been infected with it, is that the real figure of the amount of people that actually have it? If not, how many probably is it? No, how it's, it's that out? completely certainly not the final figure. The official figure is five hundred ninety cases and ten deaths, but that is only counting confirmed cases. There are probably, and this is best estimates, about ten thousand cases in the UK at the moment possibly slightly more, slightly less. This is, again, you can only estimate it from epidemiological modelling. Um, I do. I think I think they actually said that on Boris Johnson's rather uh, wet fart of a presser this afternoon. So if, if, if there's 10,000 people cutting about with this, why, why don't we know about it? Well, a lot of cases, people aren't going to 
aren't going to be able to, well, there's two reasons. First, it's testing capabilities limited. The, mm-hmm. There was basically no effort made whatsoever on behalf of the government to substantially increase testing capability. We should, right now, we should be able to test 10,000 people a day. We can maybe do 10% of that if we are incredibly lucky. And the other one is that it's, it's simply, it's hard to detect because in a lot of cases, it's relatively mild. Uh, there is this, there is this kind of iceberg, uh, bottom, bottom section of the iceberg out there with people who don't have anything worse than sort of a mild cold. And they're not going to go to hospital. They're not going to see a doctor. They might, they probably won't even bother calling the 111 line. And so there's not really any, any way to detect them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's important to bear in mind in terms of what we do and what we should expect, you know, governments and businesses and things to do. But like, it's no good getting like hyper paranoid about every illness that you have and every other person in the country, because that's presumably quite unhelpful attitude to this. Like the, we should be following like the good hygiene advice, hand washing, social distancing, etc., and Seb, how how dare you attack me like that? How dare you in public <laughs> on this podcast? Yeah, uh, well, the fact that I don't text anyone back finally gets a legitimate uh, reason. You know. <laughs> um, so if it's if it's that asymptomatic in some people, is containment a thing that's even really possible? In short, not without the sort of measures that China's put in place, not without full lockdowns serious quarantines and like enormous disruption of day-to-day life Mm. okay so this is i mean so would it even be possible in a country like the united kingdom i mean even presupposing you had the political authority and the you know whatever theoretically yes but it would yeah obviously as the government says ad nauseum they have to think about the economic effects and you know everything must be timed right which is true that locking everything down before before it's necessary would would make things worse in the longer run because of the amount of disruption it causes. However, we are at the point right now where we do have to seriously start considering large-scale interventions rather than just kind of merrily letting it run its course. Yeah, because that is, as far as I understood it, that was sort of the first idea of Boris was to just let it rip. He seems to have gotten this idea about immunity that he could just let it go through people and then it'll be gone and dusted. And my initial theory was that this, someone showed them a model that said if that happened, it would kind of all be over by Christmas, which as we all know, is Brexit day. So he must, I think initially he may have been like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> because the thing yeah, to remember about Boris Johnson take is, it on the chin comment. Yeah. Thing to remember about Boris Johnson is that he's an incredibly dumb man pretending to be a smart man pretending to be a dumb man. And we need to get a lazy man in there somewhere as well. He's, he's also incredibly lazy, so not great qualities in a prime minister, to be honest. No, they're really not. My kind of take on this was that there were three different options, and it's one of these cases where it could be, why not all three? And it's like, option one, they're incompetent and just do not appreciate or understand the scale of what is required to deal with this in an effective manner. Option two, their latent eugenicist tendencies are such that they're happy to let this thing let rip. Oh yeah, I hadn't and, even considered the the, the, yeah. the eugenics angle, but that's that's a hell of a thing. No, like Dom Cum, uh, you know, Dom Cummy's kind of department is staffed with people that are like that. It's well known. This is on record. The government thinks like that, 
um, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson are on record as, as having these kind of attitudes. So, you know, from their perspective, being idiots, um, that, that would line up with their ideology. Then the, the third option was, you know, essentially when they get into office, they're briefed pretty hard on the market volatility and how this is a house of cards, because I think you'd have to. Um, well, the house and, isn't, it's not just a house of cards, but the house of cards is currently on fire. Well, well, see, this is the thing. So I think they were kind of looking at this going, oh shit, well, we can't, we can't do anything that could destabilize what is already, we've been privately told, incredibly fragile. And we just need to hope we can kind of wing it, essentially. And by the way, we've also got this Brexit project going on and we don't want that to be disrupted either. Well, so, it's, it's already disrupted because they've uh, already um, cancelled all Brexit negotiations, the practical stuff that's going on at the moment. That yeah. almost plays into their overall strategy, though. They were probably quite happy for that excuse to actually cancel the planning. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's this weird thing because obviously it's disaster capitalism, right? It's a shock doctrine, Naomi Klein's book. Um, and that's kind of been the long term kind of plan on this. But for shock doctrine to work, there has to be some capitalism left at the end, essentially, there has to be that investment potential. And uh, looking at the markets the past few days, it's very, very fucking foreboding. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's impossible. You're staring at this and trying to intuit what's going on in their internal kind of black block, <laughs> black box. And they said black block. And I'm like, no, if there's any one group of people <laughs> who aren't masking up, that tells, you, that tells you a lot about where my mind's at. Um, like if there's... You know, you can't really intuit what they've got going on inside. You can only look at their actions and, you know, you circle back around to incompetence or malice and why not both, I guess? The other thing is that uh, there's this, it seems like a good chunk of the senior bits of the British establishment right now are getting, getting a lot of advice from something called the nudge unit, which is essentially... A, uh, yes, a I wanted right to get wing, on that. Thank you. Yeah, a right-wing think tank that is chock-a-block full of behavioral scientists and if you could see the air quotes i'm doing right now you'd be amazed <laughs> and uh, you need bigger hands amateur psychologist types but this whole business with nudging this is um uh richard thaler's work right this world he won the nobel prize for that you that like by making very minute uh price changes and, and policy changes you can like very gently shove i.e nudge people into better behaviors and stuff Yes, you can. It is a legitimate field. Like it's a thing. It's a thing you can legitimately do. But in this case, they're trying to apply it to something that is completely unsuited for. Yeah, because from what I read up on this on on this nudge unit is that it's also not actually like part of the government itself. It's actually like a private consultancy. That's but it's so tightly interwoven with. Uh, essentially, the number ten strategy unit that like they're just sort of in there like a tick, but they're not responsible for parliamentary oversight yeah, to parliamentary oversight thing. essentially well david cameron was big into this as well so i mean if this is the same institution then yeah they've got a good decade of uh intermingling with um well obviously certainly the tory party but quite likely to be other parts of uh the government itself at this point i mean ben's right behavioralism does work if you're applying it within the context which is defined by the kind of evidence base that's behind it and the nudge unit has had a lot of successes in a variety of different kind of fields, but they're mostly kind of either sociological or they're nakedly political. They, they don't work when you come up against a, a public health crisis. They just, it's, it's entirely, it's like trying to take psychological ideas 
and applying them to mechanical processes. It doesn't work like that. Well, and from everything we've been talking about is like what you need now to sort of get things on a slightly better track and, and slow down the rate of, of spread isn't so much like a gentle yeah. nudge. And I think shelf. it's also important to highlight that the government is not, the, the, the government is receiving advice from these people, but it's also receiving advice from people who are trained epidemiologists and experts in public health. Like a good example of that is Chris Whitty, who is the, if you watch the stream, he's the chief medical officer. Uh, and he was the rather sweaty guy who looked exactly like someone had just showed him a picture of his family after they'd been abducted. Um, he's a he's a genuine epidemiologist and, and an actual expert. And I have this feeling that he's been telling them one thing and the sort of civil service and scientific side telling one thing. And the other lot are saying, yes, but if we just do these little things, we can we can make it work out. But also the markets won't be damaged and everything can go on as normal and which is a very attractive thing for a politician to hear well, yeah a lot of that conference did sort of seem to have the assumption that well there's an absolute fixed number of people that are going to get this and the only thing that will ever change is sort of what time they get it and therefore we've got to wait until a certain number of people get it and then we can slam the brakes on the economy and then that's better because rather than other people, you know, getting quarantined now or, you know, lockdowns now, them getting bored and then uh, starting to go out in public again. And that's that's somehow sort of undoing all of the good work that the initial lockdown would have done. Well, that part of that is that people do get fatigued if you have a, a very long term lockdown and They've done, from what they were saying, uh, I'm basing this on what they were saying at the press conference largely, they expect essentially a three-month period where the country is going to have to be in serious lockdown and they want to place that exactly across the peak. What they don't seem to have realized is that, well, it goes back to a very basic assumption that there seems to be this assumption that people are, are horrible, horrible animals and no one will obey and you leave someone in, locked up in their house for a week, they'll go absolutely crazy and just start breaching all the rules they can for no better reason than they're bored. I think that's a very that's a very right-wing assumption. Well, I mean, you say that, but there was a, a piece on the news today that apparently um, Italian networks are on restraint because all the schools are closed, so all the Italian kids are <laughs> home playing Fortnite. Yeah, but so this is, I think it's, it's, very, it's a very right-wing assumption that there is no society and people don't look out for each other and everyone would just kind of go off and do their own thing no matter what. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, the very base of their assumptions that, then, that people wouldn't obey if this, this three months stretched to maybe four months is, is flawed because we, there's a lot of, lot of good evidence around the world from this and from previous outbreaks that if you as a government are transparent, accountable, and explain to people what's going on, provide for them, that people do obey it. It's why I think China has had such a such a success in containing the spread in the way that they have. But they just they seem to think that's completely impossible. And so they're going along this route of everyone's just going to get it and shit's going to be fucked, but it will be all right in the end. Only only some of your family and friends will die. As Boris Johnson said today, I, I literally could not believe, I could not believe my ears as that came out of his mouth. He literally said, some of your friends and family are going to die. Whoa. Well, that's uh, okay, cool. But uh, 
from from what I've seen, at least from the mortality figure, I don't have any old friends. Do you have any immunocompromised so, or friends with complications? Not that I know. <laughs> right, I'll I'll volunteer as tribute. Get me off this fucking rock. <laughs> like, so we're joking about this. Um, I have sleep apnea that's pretty bad, and I don't have a CPAP machine yet. I literally just got my, my thing through the door the other day. My O2 levels drop in my sleep um, pretty badly. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fucking terrified of this, so we're joking, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not Rob's friend, so his statement was entirely <laughs> true. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're at least an acquaintance. Yeah, see? But, you know, you're moving up in the rankings. Yeah, if I survive coronavirus, you'll upgrade me. Exactly. I, I only want, you know, strong genes in my friend you'll circle. You'll have proven your genetic Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is like calipers. And is, his skull grew two sizes This is that calipers day. by distance. It's very positive. Yeah, I'll, I'll get right back to that. I'll put my shoulder, you know, into the grindstone um, and whatever other mangled metaphor you want to come up with for, you know, trying hard to fucking survive. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Taskmaster. Master, can you survive while wearing a funny outfit at the same time? All my outfits are funny. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like um, surely one of the best ways of do social distancing is by wearing something or just generally acting so badly that nobody wants to get within one meter of you. So I'm, I'm talking. Trace like- is a young Tory. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> But I just said all my outfits were funny already. I don't. I don't get it. Oh, <laughs> this is just you only wear like cravats and several row suits, do you? Man, right? Can we just pause a second? Because I'm now picturing the image of me this is painting for listeners, and uh, I'm starting to get cold feet. I think I, I think I need to pull the ripcord on this bit. This is getting out of control. <laughs> They're gonna picture me with like dodge, dodgy facial hair that's been waxed in a strange kind of not quite passing way. You know, the, the whole cravat, the uh, but also in a, like because... a three thousand quid uh, tailored suit. Uh, I suppose you do take the good of the bad, don't you? <laughs> Oh, right. I, w- I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about this. Is like the re- the general response from up on high has been varied and weird. So, like, we've got like China, Vietnam, South Korea, all going pretty hard in on preventative measures and actually doing a good job. And then um, extremely normal countries like the UK and the US and not doing it. We're at the point now where the one of the health ministers has it well she's a super spreader because she she ran around and like had a private dinner with boris and and coughed in the faces of the cabinet right yeah she's exactly like that meme um you know sort of like regular flu sufferers uh all lying in bed and then uh coronavirus uh sufferers just like i'm gonna go water skiing i'm gonna travel the world i'm gonna (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i think my two favorite revelations of today was that uh one of bolsonaro's ides uh, the the president, the very scum president of Brazil, has it, and he was hanging around with Trump all last weekend. And the other one is that uh, Justin Trudeau's wife has it, and he she's been hobnobbing with most of the UK elite political elite for the last week. So this could be good news. Well, I mean, come on, you know, the the wife of you know, I'm I'm okay with Trudeau getting it, but the wife. Well, I'm not. Of I'm not. I'm not particularly bad. pleased that. Mm. that she has it obviously i'm just excited about the potential for it to infect the the worst parts of the united kingdom's political elite and in objectively bad stuff tom hanks has it 
<laughs> Nobody yeah. cancel Tom Hanks for me. Headline banner, <laughs> headline news in The Guardian, I think today or yesterday. You know, Tom Hanks and wife self-quarantine. That's super interesting. Thank you. Thank you. See, one of the things that... Uh, like, it might sound a bit fucking crass if, if you want to go on the decorum horse and stuff like that. Like, that we're, we're quite happy these fuckers have got it. And this is normally such a highbrow podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, yeah, we normally shy away from this kind of talk, you know. Um, but the good thing is that this isn't just a problem that only poor people will suffer. Every fucker's got lungs. Anyone can get it. And these assholes can actually fucking suffer some shit. It is a great equaliser in that way. And that they need to fucking deal with it. And that's one of the th- reasons that I've, I've been really fucking pissed off every time that they've wheeled out fucking at Mancock or Boris Johnson to give us an announcement on what we're going to do and are we moving into the containment phase, uh, the delay phase, no we're not, no. And then today we are, what does that involve? It actually involves less quarantine time and fuck you. Yeah, because explain to me again, because I, I tried to follow this during the day, but I was more looking at uh, number and, and sacrificing chickens. Um, what What's this bit with the phases? Uh, well, essentially there's... What, the, the government reaction plan, you mean, or...? But there's the delay phase, the implementation phase, and the, I don't know. Oh, yeah, and the research phase, which doesn't sound like a phase to me. It just I mean, it like sounds like it sounds like an ongoing thing. Yes, you should probably start that. It but sounds like sim weird. hospital, but like turn-based. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's civilization, right? They want to implement the pandemic response policy, but first they have to do a research phase in advance to be able to get, you know, the, the sufficient science points to be able to decide, oh, actually keeping people in their homes is now something we can do. Um, unfortunately, you know, our, our civic culture is really poor. We're still stuck with, uh, kind of, you know, authoritarian government from, you know, um, chieftain era. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. To be honest, right? Well, we had a pretty good run during the kind of Victorian era. I'm pretty sure our civilization's on a decline. And yeah, it looks but like Germany all the way. We did the public health technology during the industrial era what the hell's going on <laughs> yeah well the, our problem was we then decided to like lower our taxation rate and um look yeah. like and we converting used, yeah and we used up all our great man points to build boris johnson <laughs> how disappointing oh, that would be <laughs> Yeah, you, you, they moved him to London and they expended him to rush the Garden Bridge project. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Dave's buff Boris. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Um, these people are getting it now and we're, not do- we're actually actively doing less in quite a few ways now in the way that we're telling people actually don't take 14 days off, just take seven until you get a test. And then, you know, because you need to go back to work. Yeah, uh, these people are actually at risk of it, at risk of fucking catching this, and a lot of them are fucking older. Like I, I went through as as the the sad fucker that I am and checked the ages of everyone in the cabinet, and they actually almost all fall under sixty years old. So they're just kind of edging towards, but not quite in the, like, the high risk category. But that's not universal when you look at fucking. I mean, how how old is Trump? Seventy three. Uh, above seventy. Um, Biden is seventy eight. Bernie's the same, I want to say, something like that. It depends, it depends what the aspect uh, Biden what fucking age is. So what age is uh, two things, two <laughs> really important questions. But, I mean, Biden is, you know, 78 in the morning, but near 95 in the afternoon, but that's... Oof. Oof. Okay, two big <laughs> questions. What age is Mike Pence? Uh, just, I don't know. Okay, right. So we'll, we'll shell that and come back to it. Second question. 
What effect does a rampant coke addiction have on your underlying <laughs> health? Mike Prince, right? is a, I, Mike Prince is a sprightly 60 years old. Okay, well, he's he's like in a, he's in the risk category for it, so that's good. Um, that's interesting. Uh, no, but, but like, to, to get back to the thing, like, I've genuinely been thinking quite hard about this. Um, what effect does coke have on your immune system and your respiratory system, right? Because we know that just statistically, the House of Commons are far overrepresented <laughs> in coke use, right? And we're also far towards the, uh, you know, upper age range of the polity. And you put these two things together, and I'm really wondering what that does to their well, ability I, to I'm resist coronavirus. To I cannot imagine that it would be wonderful for them. Just imagine like that Michael Gove sweat video for me. He's all drunk or high uh, standing behind. Please, the... can you never see the words Michael Gove sweat video again? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't want to talk about it. I just want you to think about it and picture it. Um. <laughs> if Michael Gove was sweating, how would you tell? <laughs> uh, that's It's like well, his annual molting season. That means he needs to go down yeah, to, like, back to Innsmouth for a spell. The glass of water steadily fills up as he's drinking from it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's... That's why he had to pour it over his notes and his phone. He had to, like, make a mistake so no one would pay attention to the fact the glass was filling. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah. But, like, yeah, so these, these, these fuckers are all getting it and we were all, like, we're getting more time to go back to work. Like, you don't need to be off for as long. Well, that's... So... Yeah, this is an interesting sort of more personal side note, but I've got, I got, like, the weirdest corona, uh, like, update from my work today, which was, like... Um, we know you're worried. Your health is important to us. Um, we think you should come into the office, but cautiously. But cautiously. <laughs> Which, like, like, I don't know how to do that. Theme music playing while you do so. <laughs> I'm just picturing like a you know call center. You know your health is important to us. Please continue to hold. As in the background was just like coughing in place of hold music, just intensifying. Yeah. <laughs> and you finally get somebody on the line that's like a raspy lung effect in the background. Like, oh, I'm gonna help you. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Oh. Join us. Yes. Yeah, so, right. We're all we're all fucking we're all at risk of getting it, no matter who you are. Yeah. But we've all to go back to yeah. work. Whether we're on the so, highway, specifically the highway to the danger zone or not, it's all a bit of risk. Yeah, like. Everyone just fucking pile in. Just keep going to your work. Why is that? It's fucking number. Yeah. And a number has been taking a beating in the last two days. Well, longer than the oh, last yeah. two days. I, I've been laughing for a good week and a half now. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been properly good. So we went to financial crisis levels on Tuesday. Yeah, and today it's the 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 worst uh, market crash in the U.S. since 1987. So it's worse than yes. than like this high days of 2008. Um, and and the, like in the morning, the U.S. Federal Reserve announced that they were going to do like 500 billion of market support, which is essentially them just buying buying up stocks that are not doing well. Um, and that gave a small bump, but that lasted 15 minutes before crashing to earth again. So the Fed essentially set <laughs> 500 billion USD on fire for no good reason. Yeah, I've loved like the absolute displays of it. Well, um, 
I don't necessarily want to say incompetence, but just ineffectualness of central bank action in result of this. Like there was the emergency rate cut by the US Federal Reserve last uh, week by, um, you know, sort of 0.5 percent, 50 basis points in the language they use for some reason. Um, And yeah, so that bought the markets an hour and a half. Yeah. The ECB has announced the same today as another uh, rate cut, I think from 0.75 and just to, yeah, so another 50 basis points as well. So another 0.5 cut. And that makes it essentially so that if you're a bank and you're keeping money in the ECB accounts, um, you're losing money on that every day because essentially it's a negative interest rate. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm pretty positive like any like substantial bank, apart from, I guess, maybe China's um banking industry depending on uh what state backing they give various institutions everywhere is going negative china's banking industry is so weird and so incomprehensible that nobody understands what the fuck's going on inside there well yeah this is a thing since 2016 i've been waiting on this i've been i've been genuinely waiting and when it came up in 2016 i was like here we fucking go and then china turned around and basically nationalized their stock market and the rest of the world just went yeah cool that's fine that's okay it's fine with me yeah still capitalism okay we're still good and that, like, staved it off. And ever since then, I've just been kind of staring at this going, fuck me, what what does it take? What does it actually take to push it over? And now here we are. And I guess, like, there's nothing they can do. They have nothing in their toolbox because, like, I've said this before, but maybe not on the podcast, but my kind of take on the stock market is that it's an index of exploitation, but it's exploitation of two different things. On the fundamental level, it's exploitation of work. It's exploitation of workers. It's a measure of investors' confidence in their ability, their company's abilities to exploit their workers to increase their profits. But there's also the other side to it, which is investors' confidence in their own ability to exploit kind of failures and contradictions in the system to grift a large amount of money for themselves. And the... um, you know, whenever you have a market crash, it's because both of these things tend to align um, in a lesser or greater way. And in 2008, it was the Ponzi scheme of the subprime mortgage, you know, um, bubble. Essentially, that got undermined both by investors realizing, oh shit, this is a total grift and word of that starting to spread. At the same time, as the market contradictions came up, people weren't able to pay their mortgages. We flash cut to now. Since then, there were no fundamental changes in material conditions to, you know, improve things, um, either improve working conditions for workers to build the economy to the point where they could then be exploited further, or to find new ways to be able to exploit workers. It just didn't, it didn't really materialise that hard. And uh, instead, they kind of used a bunch of financial tricks to try and, like, smooth over the, the you know, exploitation of flaws in the system angle of things. But now there's nothing left in their toolbox and we're hitting a massive contraction as people are going, oh shit, yeah, Tesla really is incredibly overvalued. At the same time as people are going, oh shit, the pros aren't going to be able to come into work because they're all going to be incredibly sick. And oh, wouldn't you look at that? All the manufacturing capacity in China is falling over. Yeah. So there's fuck all they can do about this. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting period. And and the, other, so the under, underlying thing that makes the whole you know house of cards even more wobbly is... Um, Grace Blakely had a good tweet thread about it. We'll put it in the in the in the show links as well. But like, there is so much corporate and insecure debt out there at the moment because they've been using four years of quantitative easing and essentially all this cheap money that's been 
pushed into the system by the central banks and like all of it's essentially being converted into into um like all corporations have loaded up on debt because the debt is so cheap and now it's like okay but what if we actually have to pay it back and the debt we've accrued you know we can't refinance as we all do every day because this thing is getting bad and then you imagine that like um, companies, even companies like Apple um, and Facebook, a lot of their money comes from uh, the giant piles that of cash they sit on. Like they essentially lend that over on a daily basis to big financial actors. And like, what if Facebook tomorrow says well, we need to keep paying our staff, or you know, during this period, or we are not doing this anymore because we want to sit on our pile? Then like the financial markets freeze up in the exact same way they did in 2008 because then it's interbank lending that crashes and that's the moment when the whole thing starts going completely to shit. Yeah, I did wonder um, last year, you know, if we were starting to see the elements of that because the Fed was uh, putting, you know, absolutely billions into the repo market, which was designed to try and, you know, increase liquidity in between the various lending um, things. And so... I was thinking like, well, and in fact, when I was reading around, everyone else seemed very puzzled that if things are okay, where why is suddenly everyone out of money? <laughs> yeah, that, that, I remember that as well. There was a, um, sorry, we should very briefly probably explain repo markets. Repo. What, oh, I don't even know what they mean, really. <laughs> why, why, very roughly speaking, re, repos are repurchasing agreements. agreements essentially, yeah. um, this means that, very big financial actors and by that you really have to look beyond banks but also include um hedge funds pension funds uh sovereign wealth sovereign funds, wealth funds co- co- big corporates um they all to finance just like their day-to-day stuff like they may need a bit more cash on day x to do payroll and a bit less cash the next day like they all constantly um lend each other shares in exchange for cash and and, and that on usually like a 24, 48 hour basis. And the person lending you cash, you pay it back to him for 24 hours with like a very low little bit of interest on it. Which essentially is, if you're a capitalist, that's a good thing because that means you don't just have your money sitting on, on, in the bank. It's out there or on very short terms giving you money. And like also your shares while you're waiting for dividends, like a pension fund, um, are still out there earning a very small return. Now that's all very good and well. And that's essentially what has allowed the modern credit period to keep existing and keep growing a part of it at least and once that starts seizing up it becomes very fucking terrifying in a very big hurry because none of the big actors in the market today can survive without repo essentially dear listener if you are finding this section interminably boring (laughs) and incredibly fucking hard to follow and also terrifying at the same time, then strap in, baby, because it's going to be this for the next six months. Yes. Oh, minimum, minimum. I mean, Saros, when do you see, like, the, um, you know, COVID-19 sort of, well, maybe not even resolving, but becoming a part of, like, everyday life now, whether that is increased home working and... When uh, does the wave crest, I think? When things will start to normalise, at this point... My best guess, and that is the that is based upon the information I get from people I collaborate with at Imperial, Imperial University's uh, Infectious Disease Unit. Um, the best guess is late May, early June is the peak of the epidemic, in which we have 
3.5 to 4 million concurrent infections and 20% of those people are out of work and uh, it tails off for another two, two and a half months after that and then we're down to sort of, it's not such a massive deal anymore but there is going to be a three to four month period where everything is just going to be absolute shit yeah and like my thought is that obviously with that still to happen and also this major crisis of capitalism taking place well because of that but also because it's capitalism that yeah we're gonna have probably the next yeah, the system was already extremely fragile, but this, you know, has nudged it in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's it's gone fucking nudging it. I swear to God, <laughs> total meltdown. But the point is, there will be something afterwards, and we will have to be having serious, like, political uh, arguments, and you know, building power around trying to shape what the thereafter looks like, because this is both a global, you know, crisis of production and distribution and power and everything so like this is genuinely an opportunity to like reorganize international relations in a way that hasn't existed since the second world war well maybe maybe that's taking it to a very extreme that's a very extreme position i think you know everywhere that gets shut down is just going to drop out of the global economy for a period of months Mm. and everywhere else in the world that relies on that place is going to have to adapt so we're doing that for Uh. china now America will be doing that in the next couple of months. Everywhere else will have to adapt to that. And so there's going to be a serious severing, which um, is already occurring, basically. And then the question is, who's going to be capable of picking up the pieces at what speed and to what end? Well, obviously, it'll be post-Brexit Britain. Because not only are we (laughs) and powerful and ready to strike up all those new trade deals with these recovering economies, but will also be culled freshly and only the genetically pure will survive. And we'll be ready as supermen to seize the world again in a new empire. Didn't David Davis two weeks ago, or yeah, I know, <laughs> didn't he say uh, something along the lines of like, yeah, um, Brexit will be good because it will allow us to, what's it? It will allow us to um, like rebuild our own production systems. Like, it will allow us to become more autarkic and have our own manufacturing and, and, and resource production? Well, probably. I'm, I'm sure plenty of them try to say that, you know. And it, it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a good argument then. But, like, it's happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for A, for one, we don't know really yet what's happening. Like, it's pretty bad, but we don't really know what's happening yet. And I think, in, you know, on the... It, not to give central banks too much credit, but they have been saying since 2008 and especially since 2016, they have been saying constantly, look, it can't just be us, you know, tossing more digital money in, in you know, in for the volcano god of number. Like, there has to be fiscal uh, action. There has to be, like, actual policy action. They've been pretty good at saying that for the last 10 years. And Yeah, I mean, I think that's the only thing Mark Carney said, like, in the last six months of his role as governor like that was the only thing he came on air to say anymore it's like yeah i can't do anything you guys have to spend some money like the the problem we face in this is that there is only actually one project that could be undertaken that would actually stimulate the economy and would preserve capitalism and would do all the things that 
you know, the, the capitalists nominally would like to see happen to continue their unjust, tyrannical rule of the world, and that's to essentially implement some kind of massive Green New Deal. Oh, I was going to say, out. cut the minimum wage so well, workers become more competitive. <laughs> well, I mean, you could, you, yep, sure, that, that is one approach to it. Um, you definitely, yep, um, it's the more likely approach, to be honest. No, but like, so they could do, they, you know, if they were to say, right, we're going to seriously tackle climate change and we're going to institute a, essentially a globally coordinated Green New Deal in every country, that would probably save capitalism in the long run. The problem is they can't do that because they're wedged in from another side, which is all the power structures that exist in the world, are they are synonymous with, they're one-to-one, they're transparent with the oil economy. They're all built on that from the ground up. And so that you, you can't transition away from oil without actually blowing up all the power structures that keep the current rulers in their place. And that has always been the problem. And that's why they won't ever address it, because, um, you know, the oil companies, the donors, all the rest of them, they, they are baked into society in such a big way, you can't get around that. And so this leads us to the kind of situation where it's like, absent a massive public work project like that, what is there you could theoretically do? What restructuring could you do? as a capitalist, let's say, to actually save this shit? And the answer is, there's not really anything that I can think of. Like, we, they like to talk a little wank about, oh, no, we'll, we'll innovate and disrupt the economy with Silicon Valley, you know, tech innovations, but it's just, it's not there. You know, tech doesn't... No, like, no. Tech- well, I mean, this was another one of Sir Boris's brain farts, wasn't it? That he was, he, he was going to... He said, oh, I need solutions. I'm going to sit down with Facebook and Google to develop solutions to... Um, the coronavirus. I mean, Saros, they have the right ideas, right? I mean, I mean you, you don't want to talk, talk to Google, Google about anything health related because they have some truly terrifying Big Brother shit going on with their own sort of healthcare stuff. But yeah. mm. like all of our NHS data, <laughs> I don't think we're the right people to deal with a public health crisis or any crisis, really. So the kind of summation of this is like. People have been saying, oh, final crisis of capitalism, let's go. And it's too early to say whether that's even a chance right now. But, um, I mean, conditions are moving in that direction. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Really. Well, I mean, there's there's one sort of, to briefly turn back to what you were talking about with the with the Green New Deal, which which would maybe be one of the solu- sort of structural long-term solutions to get out of whatever slump we're about to enter. But... Um, like this is sort of a side note, but it's like it's concurrent and it's it's setting everything on fire at the same time. Which is that um, the Russians and the Saudis are having a giant spat about oil prices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This came out of nowhere for me. Um, yeah, it's I, been. I don't know if anyone a... was following this before the announcement, but I was like, oh Jesus, this seems to have happened, didn't they? Well, I mean, it's it's been sort of a long running thing, and essentially, um, it's it. OPEC is always difficult. Um, Russia is no longer part of OPEC. I think they were never in it in the first place, or they were briefly, but then stepped out again. I mean, OPEC essentially is a cartel to exist to keep oil production and prices at a certain level that its members enjoy. Um, and the Russians obviously have big oil and gas deposits of their own, uh, and they sort of coordinate usually between them. But this time, that mechanism has has failed uh, because the Saudis wanted to um, have more production, essentially, and the Russians said, "No, we don't think that's a good idea." So they've fallen out massively, and the whole reason for like this whole instability in the long run has been the development of the U.S. and uh, fracking, uh, shale gas developments, shale gas and oil, which has essentially crashed the price of of oil globally and made the U.S. much more less dependent on on imports. Um, so now 
the Russians said no now's the time to like crater the market because if we crater it then uh u.s shale gas and shale oil extraction is no longer uh financially viable so we can like they can literally kill off that industry if they keep it up for two or three years because the whole thing in the u.s is literally going to go bankrupt because it's indebted up to the tits um, yeah so they now, tried to do that before uh whenever the last major drop in price was yeah they did years ago but, but quite a while time, but the yeah. stat that I liked from that was that the oil drum that the oil came in cost more than the yes, oil inside it. it was, yes. And <laughs> we've now beaten that, that uh, the oil inside the oil drum um, costs less than a bucket of KFC chicken, a particularly large yeah, bucket of chicken, yeah, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's, um, oil is, un- is, I think, hovering around $25 US dollar a barrel, which is like, hideously, insanely cheap. Um, and the Russians have amassed like a $570 billion uh, war chest to like keep fighting this war um, with the Saudis and with the Americans, you know, until it stops. And the problem, of course, with all of this in terms of the Green New Deal is, is if energy is this cheap, why would you buy uh, uh, windmills or install solar farms? True. But I thought that the actual last time the oil dropped massively and and sort of the, the response then with, you know, the, the other activists and uh, other sort of generally eco-friendly people I was talking about with about it is just like, well, OK, but then the point has often been always to make the actual, you know, political argument around it rather than purely the economic one, um, because there, there's it's. It's obviously massively beneficial to move away from fossil fuel extraction just in terms of, you know, non-climate change uh, causing pollution and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there was always a good argument for not using this stuff. Um, and it, it's just that now that needs to be the core of the argument uh, rather than, you know, sort of trying to lie, rely on the more, um, you know, pro-economic arguments which like james was saying it's never really going to lead to a change in the system because so much of their interests are caked in to relying on the fossil fuel uh industry and the the actual you know institutional power that that has that you know it, it could be you could have free sort of green energy and many places would still want to be relying on fossil fuels. So if I can interject, there's a question I was thinking before the show, and this kind of brings it back up. Um, I've heard nothing about how Russia is doing with coronavirus. Nothing at all. Does anyone know? Can anyone fill me in? I don't know. They got 20 cases last I heard. They shut a lot of the border posts with China and, uh, yeah, kind took a fairly proactive in the sense of keeping it out. But I think it's probably much like any other place that's, you know, detecting a few dozen cases potentially. Yeah, I don't have any more. reason to believe Russia is in particularly dire straits at the moment, but they will get there eventually, same as everyone else will. Um, it's not like it's Iran where it's it's very obvious that the government is completely covering up the sort of scale of the epidemic there, or the United States where they've just gone and said, "We're not going to test. This is great." Everything is fine. Well, I, I feel it's worth... There's something I actually want to raise about Iran, which is Iran is also struggling under massive fucking sanctions, um, which have been leveled against country for a while, which, as far as I understand it, is impeding their efforts to actually be able to respond to the crisis on a, like, on a medical level. 
um, which led to the amazing thing the other day when Elizabeth Warren, the oh, failed presidential presidential candidate, um, she came out and said that you know oh you know these sanctions there are. Uh, they're making it really difficult for Iran to respond appropriately, to which people are going, hmm, yes, if only someone could have foreseen this when they fucking voted to put sanctions on Iran. So, uh, and there's not really a joke here, it's just fucking horrendous. There's a, yeah, there's a, <laughs> uh, they, I, I live in, 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 in Belgium, and they've just announced, like, the Belgian crisis measures, and it's really weird. They've said, um, so restaurants and stuff, a lot of things are closing, uh, essential things uh, stay open as usual. But um, <laughs> so schools are closing, um, except if you don't have childcare, then the school stays open. Eh? Yes. Mm. Well, in a way, in a way, closing schools isn't sort of this magic bullet that it seems to be considered by the press. And the, I think it's largely no. considered such a huge deal because... Well, in the UK anyway, the press are the sort of garden reading yummy mummies of inner London and the the, uh, the various more rural bits of the country all enthralled to the the nastier bits of the tabloids. And for them, the closing of the schools is the first thing that really affects them because because suddenly you have yeah. to look after your kid. Yeah, your child, your your free childcare the government provides is suddenly gone. So if the child cares away, obviously then they need to start taking time off work. So if they need to take time off work, they might as well just be given the time off work. And if you give them the time off work, then you're basically in a lockdown anyway. So you're doing the thing that they don't want to do because that'll make number go down. Government won't close schools here in all likelihood until it's it's basically time for a maximal scale lockdown. lockdown. That'll be, well... And that'll probably be when we hit peak. I, I, I would have said that would have been this week. Even and then that was... That was and even then. That was too late. It should have been, it should oh, it should have been, have been. Yeah, starting agree, two yeah. weeks ago and phased in. But I honestly couldn't tell you what this barrel of fucking idiots are going to do. It's mm. it's again. It's that whole thing. It's like um, but the cash twenty two of it is they're looking at the number and going, oh man, if we do anything, it could disrupt the markets and they'll start to go down. Now that it's going down, we're looking at it going, oh well, it's already terrible. This will just make it worse. So <laughs> they're like, you know, hesitating over it, but. I don't know, a part of me still thinks there's some kind of latent tough eugenicist kind of bullshit going on with all of this. Again, I think it goes back to they, they can't, they are receiving good advice. I'm I'm sure of that. I know some of the people who would have, not personally, but you know, know of some of the people who would have been given this, in this advice, but they just don't appear to be listening or they appear to be listening to someone else who's got something strange going on. Dom Cummies in his logic bunker. Maybe they all know they've already got the coronavirus. So it's just like, well, I've rolled the dice. Everyone's going to suck it with me. It's like um, oh, the dead zone, you know. Um, <laughs> he gets the visions of the future to stop that presidential candidate. Man, like that, you know, I didn't... This tells you a lot about my naivety about mankind, but or humankind, sorry, apologies. Um, like, when Trump got the virus... And which he probably does by now, based on uh, a whole bunch of different vectors all converging on him. He's, he's um, been like in, in like a corona cuddle puddle for the last three days. Yeah, like I genuinely, I thought, oh, when Trump starts getting worried that this is a thing that'll actually affect him, maybe he'll actually get his thumb out and start like taking it seriously, and like he'll be forced out of that narrative because he's a notorious germaphobe. It's it's pretty well known. Um, and I thought, well, maybe Boris and them they'll start to kind of go oh shit and panic when it starts to hit them. It didn't occur to me to think that actually their response might be, oh, well, fuck it, if I'm fucked and everyone else should be too. 
Imagine like, being uh, a leftist podcaster and not automatically <laughs> just going straight to spite. <laughs> like, oh man. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have the love of humanity within me. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's um, it's going to be some interesting times coming ahead. Um, yeah. So yeah, just remember to spend your time in self isolation listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> Except when it turns out that podcasts are vectors for disease. The disease of socialism. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm coming to you from a throne of toilet paper, cat food, and non-perishable goods, so I am, I am great. Like, uh, I mean, I might already have it. Who the fuck knows? But, uh, like, yeah. Yeah. I am sitting on my beans in preparation. I, I literally went to uh, the store today and bought extra PS4 games, so I'm set for a little while. <laughs> look at look at this fucking noob who doesn't have a backlog on his Steam library. I don't even have Steam. <laughs> God damn. Um, yeah, so I think we'll probably kind of close it off there. Um, ben, thanks very much for the, the info. That was some, yeah, good, interesting stuff. Yeah, no worries. Do you have a Twitter account that people can bother you at? No, I don't use Twitter. Okay, that's a wise call. <laughs> good man. Wise choice. Wise choice. Corona also spreads through Twitter. Well, much worse things spread through Twitter. <laughs> no, don't give me that. Can I hope? That's how the brain worms <laughs> get you, right? So hang on. Corona. Corona is like a, it is an avian disease. Like that's where we thought it came from, right? Um, no, it's 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 not a bird disease. It's a mammal of some sort. Ah, there you go. It doesn't spread through Twitter. It it genuinely could be a pangolin slash. But I think bat is the most likely because there's little bits of bat sequence in there where it's kind of crashed through a large population of bats and picked up bits of their DNA because viruses do that shit because they're incredibly weird. Yeah, if you want to hear about how it was um, aliens or the Russians or the Americans, listen to, I don't know, True Anon <laughs> pod or whatever. <laughs> hey, True Anon, I'm sorry, I will not have you dis- besmirch the good honour of True Anon. They don't do that shit. I, I gotta say, I went and got my haircut today with like my, my just sort of local Italian barber and he was full in on... It was like someone released it and then I've got the cure and they'll show up in a couple of months. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> There's whole sections of like the, the, um, the Trump movement of the, 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 the MAGA ch- chuds who genuinely believe that this is a Chinese conspiracy to destroy American manufacturing. <laughs> but you know, right, it's not just, sorry, hang on. It's not just them. Today there was a comment from a US, I believe it was senator or congressman, yeah. one of the two, um, Republican, <laughs> saying that the people who did this to us will be punished. Yeah, that was Tom Cotton. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. and well, then someone asked him, do you mean China? And he just went, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like... You know, so oh it's it's God. not just the, it's not just the QAnon people. Fucking no, no, hell. no. But that's, oh, Tom um, that's Tom Cotton, and he is widely bruited to be like the 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 best successor. Isn't to he Trump. the most the most moronic <laughs> member of Congress? <laughs> run to the... He no, there's a couple. <laughs> that's that a is, stiff now. Contest, hang on, let's be honest. That, that, is, that is some sweepstakes you've got going yeah, on. Yeah, that's uh, too powerful to say. I think Jamie. I think Gomez, Louis Gomez, is still in, and he is. <laughs> Always Who's, the dumbest man. Um, but Who's the guy who wore the gas mask Tom, and is now in isolation? <laughs> there is uh, Tom Cotton. Is I do think he's the dumbest member of the Senate. I think is uh, uh, of Arkansas. Yeah, he's from Arkansas. Like, he, he's a drool case. I can't remember oh, the name of the guy with the gas mask. But that stuff. was some. That was some peak fucking. Oh yeah, 
fucking hell. Rocks in with a gas mask to take the piss. Then it finds out not long after one of his constituents have died of coronavirus, <laughs> and then he fucking gets it. I gotta say, if there's some. Yeah. Oh, that was okay. Matt, Matt Getz. That was Matt Getz from Florida. Yeah, he is yeah, another world name, yeah. star dumbass. He ended up sleeping in a Walmart par- parking what? lot. I'm not making this up. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, right. This is, I think there is a lesson from this episode, which is no matter how dark, no matter how terrible, no matter how depressing things are in the world, you can always look to the insanity of American politics to find some fucking humor in it. <laughs> Yeah, he, 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 part, as part of his isolation, he was he kind of locked himself in his car <laughs> in the, the Walmart parking lot for a while. Yeah. Uh, Probably after he tried to return the gas mask that he bought. <laughs> <laughs> oh fucking hell! But yeah, no, I think we'll I think we'll tie it up there, guys. I don't have any comment or commentary out for no, this no. because I really didn't want to have to read through a million BBC news comments no, about how actually it's five G that's caused the virus. No, mm-hmm. I think next time we're on, maybe if we have time, we'll do that um, latest piece of Suzanne Moore in the Spectator because th- that's oh, for good luck. Maybe maybe not. It's a fucking trial <laughs> to even fucking consider reading that thing. Not again, anyway. Um, there's a lot of other things we would have covered the budget. You know, next time, other things have plus happened. like the po- possibly next time, and also the budget's going to be a, a, a void thing in three weeks, depending on what happens. Yeah, with any luck, the final crisis of capitalism reels its head, strikes, and then we can all fucking in the next three weeks, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Question mark, question mark, question mark. The next step, profit. That's that's what we'll do. <laughs> yeah. No, no profit. That's the whole point, David. What are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In in the meantime, keep. You know, dear audience, uh, keep coughing, keep licking the seats in the subway, um, keep <laughs> keep panic buying toilet paper. Do not do these things. You never have enough toilet paper, and you know it. <laughs> and and most importantly, don't forget that drinking the bleach is good. <laughs> it cleans out your insides. <laughs> That's true. We are going to spend this time in isolation to, to come up with our own pod cure. I've got to say that is one hell of a fucking setup for a joke because you spent the entire episode being level-headed and going yeah I just want to reassure people and then you fucking end by going so um, you know important thing is don't panic stay safe and remember drink your bleach (laughs) for legal reasons this podcast must do not drink bleach don't actually drink bleach alright that was a really good thing actually we should have more disclaimers (laughs) no Please don't give us more excuses to make fucking libel things happen. <laughs> yeah. All right. Shall we call Is it? That it? Thank yeah, you, everybody, yeah, for listening. We're just yeah. messing you know, around now, aren't we? We are just messing around, but genuinely, um, be healthy, be safe, um, wash your hands, stay away from your face, and uh, wash your hands. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. No. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks, Saros, for uh, coming yeah. and providing like some really informative uh, views on what coronaviruses etc it's been lovely having you on all right everybody that's it good night yeah. bye yeah goodbye bye follow us at praxit bye <laughs> <laughs>